Good morning, Village Bible Church. My name is Tim Bedall, and I have the great privilege of serving as lead pastor here at the church, and uh, it is our great privilege to open up God's Word this morning as we kick off a new series that we've entitled Relentless Joy, a study through uh, the book of Philippians. And so if you've got a Bible, uh, turn in your Bible to the book of Philippians. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, grab that pew Bible and the pew rack in front of us, in front of you, and you can find it on page 980 in those pew Bibles uh, that are there for you. And today we begin a journey, and it's a journey that we've done over and over again. Um, We open up another book of the Bible, and we make it our goal and our desire to walk through that book of the Bible verse by verse to understand the context and the culture of the church that uh, had been placed in Philippi by God and Uh, through his Holy Spirit, and uh, we're going to walk through these four chapters together, and it's something we do. We call this expositional preaching. It's a hallmark of uh, our commitment to God's Word, and while there are many ways to study the Bible, and we do at times uh, focus in on topics or focus in on certain themes, uh, our main way of studying the Scriptures is by doing this, picking up a book and starting at the beginning and going until the very end. I was recently interviewed about the church and the growth of the church and the great things that the church is doing. And the interviewer asked the question of me, um, you talk about this expositional preaching that you do at the church, and you uh, give that as one of the reasons for the growth that the church has experienced. And the interviewer said, how many books of the Bible have you gone through? And I was stunned because I had no idea what the answer to that question was. And so as soon as the interview was done, I went and and scoured all of my notes and, and looked back at our website to try to figure it out, and I've got an answer for you. We have gone through uh, nine Old Testament books from the beginning to the end, and we've gone through 13 New Testament books. That's 22 books of the Bible in my time as pastor here that we have walked through. That's a third of the Bible, which is really exciting. And today we begin on the second half, if you will, of our studies of New Testament books. And what a great book it is, a great book for us to devour and to glean great truths from and to enjoy our time in it. But this journey that I want to talk about is more than us just studying a book of the Bible. Uh, it's greater than that because the journey that I believe that God has us on as a church and what your campus pastors believe to be something that is terribly necessary in our life and our time today is that of joy. And we want to begin a journey as your leaders and as a church, a, a joy, I'm sorry, a journey to joy. That is, we need to look at our lives and ask the question, why is it we're not experiencing the abundant joy that God has called us to have as followers of his? In our world full of cynicism and anxiety and, and vitriol and all of the things that happen in Washington and all that it bleeds down into our own daily lives, there is a, a cynicism, there's a negative viewpoint about the world we live in and about our lives. And God has said that he sent Jesus Christ that we might have joy and experience joy in all its fullest and fullness And this morning, we kick off a series journeying to that joy by opening a book that's dedicated to this theme, a joy that transcends all understanding, 
A joy that transcends all tribulations. A joy that transcends all problems. A joy that transcends all circumstances. The joy that God wants us to have is a joy that we will learn comes from him and is within each and every one of us if we will choose to pursue it with all our hearts by pursuing the only one who makes it available to us, Jesus Christ. And so this morning, we're going to do an introduction to the book, and then we're going to do an introduction to this subject matter of joy, and we're going to tie uh, into that our study of verses 1 and 2 of Philippians this morning. So let's turn our attention to God and His Word as we read the opening verses of this incredible book. Philippians 1 says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers, that is the elders and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's stop there and let's ask for God's blessing on our time. Father God, we come before you and we thank you for the time to gather. We thank you that uh, this is a place filled with joy. We come in and we sing praises about what you are doing and what you have done. And we, with great anticipation, now open your word to understand what it means to be people who perpetually live and go through life with joy in our heart. Lord, that's a tall order in our world today. There are many issues and circumstances and struggles We live in a time where anxiety and depression are ruining the lives of so many people. And Lord, we turn to your book and we ask the question, where can a people like us find joy? Amidst the troubles and the difficulties of life, where can we turn so that we might experience the abundant life that you talk about? And so Lord, by your spirit, I ask that you will teach us, that you'll train us in righteousness for our good, and then even for greater ways, for your glory, we pray all of this. In Christ's name, amen. Well, as we open this book this morning, my outline is rather simple. I want to look at three things that we need to learn about this book, and then I want to look, and I'm going to scare you, with seven truths, seven truths about joy that are essential to us living life. And so let's jump in right away and ask the question, what do we need to know about this book? There are three things that I want you to see about this book. First of all, we need to look at the details surrounding this letter. Uh, Turn in your Bibles for a moment to Acts 16. So we're in the book of Philippians, but to understand where the book of Philippians comes into play in the New Testament narrative, we've got to go back to Acts 16. For those who have been a part of Village Bible Church, You know much about Acts 16. We just finished a two-year study through that book of Acts, learning about the early church and God's work in that early church. And we came about a year ago um, to this passage of Acts 16. And Acts 16 is a defining moment for the church. Up to that point, the movement of the church had been relatively contained, The gospel was going forth, but it hadn't made its way into Europe, the center of civilization. It hadn't uh, had its effect on the European continent yet. 
But that was all going to change in Acts chapter 16 because what would take place is Paul would have a vision. God would give Paul this vision, and in this vision, there was a man, and we don't know how he uh, came to the conclusion that it was a man from Macedonia, but that's what Luke says in the narrative, that Paul sees this man from Macedonia who calls and in fact compels Paul to bring himself and his associates to Macedonia, which is Europe, modern-day Greece, and to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. And after that vision, Paul makes this decision, I am going to go, and I am going to spread the gospel to places that it had never been before. For the first time, according to biblical history, the gospel would go forth on the continent of Europe. And it would go to the leading cities of Greece, And would go to the leading city, in fact, as Paul's journey would continue on at the end of the book of Acts, all the way to Rome and Caesar's household. But it begins where? Where is the first place, as Neil Armstrong did on the moon, planting the American flag when the Americans landed there some years ago? Where would be the first place that Paul and the gospel of Jesus Christ and the church of the living God, where would it first plant its flag of gospel engagement? It would be in the city of Philippi. The city of Philippi. They come to this city. It's a known city. Luke tells us it's a leading city in all of the area. Philippi is named after a Macedonian king about 400 years before Philippians was written by a man by the name of Philip. It was a city that was known for its entanglements with the military life. And so many military leaders and soldiers would find themselves retiring in their old age, if you will, in that area. And so Philippi was a known city. It was a city that had lots of things going for it. What it did not have was much of a God-fearing presence. We know that there were very few Jews in the city of Philippi because when Paul in Acts chapter 16 enters the city with his associates, there's no synagogue in the city of Philippi. And it wouldn't have taken much for a synagogue to be created. Twelve men is the foundation of uh, an ability to start a synagogue, and there isn't. So there doesn't seem to be a large Jewish population there, nor does there seem, in much of all of Greece, much of a God-fearing population. And so as was their custom, they would find a synagogue, there was none, and then they would go to seek, as they would do these missionary journeys, are there any, is there anyone in the local area that is seeking after God? And that is what they find. They go down by a river where they find a group of women who are, preach, uh, who are praying, and they begin to preach to these women, and one woman in particular, a wealthy woman, Acts 16 tells us, by the name of Lydia, who's a God-fearing woman but does not understand or realize the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ, is witness to, and she bows the knee to Jesus. And this woman who was influential in her town is the beginning of the process of the church of Philippi being started. But then it continues to go on. In those opening days of ministry in the city of Philippi, uh, Paul and Silas are coming to and fro from opportunities of sharing the gospel. And all the while, Acts 16 tells us, a young slave girl who was demonized is chanting and, and, and crying out against them, and it's starting to aggravate Paul. 
Everywhere they go, whatever they're doing, they're preaching Christ. And this demonized young woman keeps talking and keeps interrupting. And finally it says after he gets irritated, which I love the realism of of Luke's uh, sharing of the story, he gets frustrated and he casts out the demon. And the woman, the young lady, is freed from that demonic oppression and is able in her right mind now to go about life. Well, the problem was... You would think that this would have excited a city, but in the city of Philippi, uh, witchcraft and sorcery was a big part of Philippian life. And one of the things that this young girl was able to do was she brought a great prophet, uh, that is P-R-O-F-I-T, money, she brought a great monetary prophet to her owners because she could, because of the demon that was within her, foretell things of the future. And when she was released of that demon, she lost that ability to see into the future. And likewise, so went all the proceeds of the fortune-telling business. The leading men of the city get angry. This Paul and this Silas who have come and preaching about this unknown God has taken away their ability to make a profit. And so they go to the city magistrates and they say, throw them into prison. And that's exactly what Paul's time in Philippi was about. He was imprisoned. We are told, that starting in verse 16, that him and Silas find themselves in prison. And what they, you would think would be doing was be, become bitter and angry at God. God, you sent us here. God, you gave us this vision that we were to go, and we were obedient to that vision. And now what have you done? You have put us in prison. We could have stayed where we were at. We could have continued to preach the gospel there. But you have led us to a dead end. Now we're in chains. Now we're behind prison doors. But that's not what they do at all. The text tells us that around midnight, they begin singing praises to God. They begin in the most difficult of circumstances of life, they begin to show out of an overflow of what God is doing in their lives, they express joy. They start rejoicing, which is the verb form of joy, and they start singing. They start singing so loud that the others in the, in the prison can hear them, wondering what kind of joy allows prisoners to sing a song. Well, the singing is interrupted because an earthquake takes place. And the earthquake is so violent in Philippi that the prison doors are open, the text tells us, and the chains fall off. It's a prison break. It's time to run out of the prison. But Paul and Silas, being godly and righteous men, and seeing maybe an opportunity for their faithfulness amidst hardship, they stay and somehow talk the rest of the prisoners to stay And the prison warden comes in, and he's ready to end his life because he has failed miserably. All of his prisoners, no doubt, when the earthquake takes place, have run off and and, uh, escaped. He knows his life's over, so he's about to end his life. And Paul announces to him, listen, you don't have to do that. We're all here. And he begins to hear stories about the singing and hear stories about this Paul and Silas and their God and how God was moving and... And he asks the question, what must I do to be saved? And Paul tells that Philippian jailer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Three conversions, three life-changing experiences were the beginning, were the seed 
that now 10 years later, Paul would write after his visit to Philippi, 10 years later, he would write a church, write to a church a letter that expresses great joy. Now, let's understand some of the de- demographics of this young church. The demographics of this young church are pretty amazing. In the time of Jesus, and in fact in the times of Paul, there was a Jewish saying by men, in fact it was a prayer that Jewish men would pray, and it was a prayer thanking God they weren't a certain type of people. They would end their day or begin their day with this prayer, Lord, I thank you that I am not a Gentile, I thank you I'm not a woman, and I thank you I'm not a slave. This horrific prayer of superiority was a prayer of thankfulness to God because the Jewish man saw himself as something greater than he was in God's eyes. He had a greater estimation of himself than God had for him. And this story of the Philippian church, listen to me very carefully, is a rebuke and rebuttal from God to superiority in the minds of you and I of what God sees as the church. You see, the Jew, Jewish man would say, I'm glad I'm not a Gentile. I'm glad I'm not a woman or a slave. And let's just go back to Acts chapter 16. What is the revival that takes place in the life of Philippi? It starts with a woman, it involves a slave, and it ends with a Gentile jailer. And so what God is telling us is God is saying, listen, the Christian manifesto isn't based on color. The Christian manifesto isn't based on gender. The Christian manifesto of the gospel is not something that is for you so you can uh, lord it over people, but it is a gospel that goes to all people everywhere, no matter their social economic status, no matter where they find themselves, because the church of Philippi is a blueprint for what a healthy and vibrant church looks like, filled with men and women, filled with old and young, filled with those who are new to the faith and those who maybe grew up uh, in a religious household, those who have big and ugly backgrounds in their lives, and those who seemingly have lived a pretty clean life. All of these things are things that would be the foundation of this church. Now, 10 years later, Paul begins to write this letter of joy. And in this letter of joy, he thanks this church and praises God for this church because it has in 10 years grown to be a healthy, vibrant, and mature church. Verse 1, we see it's established elders and deacons, the teachers of the church and the servants in the church. And they have those. And there's no talk in the text about uprisings against these leaders in fact, it's talked about that the leaders are loved and cared for later in the, in the letter. We don't know of any, and this is true in all of Paul's writings, that there's no condemnation of the church falling into false teaching in the book of Philippians. We hear it in Galatians, we hear about it in Ephesians, we hear it about it in Colossians. But in Philippians, there's no mention of false teaching taking place. They had stayed true to the true gospel of Jesus Christ. Third, there was no issue of division within the church. The only mention of a seeming place of disunity is that Paul makes a passing reference to two women 
who disagreed about the type of coffee which was being served at the church during the fellowships. I've added a little to that. Two women disagree. And Paul says, help you guys around them, help them to come to a place of unity. But there isn't the division that happens in the church of Corinth. There isn't the division that happens in the church of Ephesus. So what we are reading, listen to me very carefully, may be a letter to the healthiest, most vibrant of churches in all of the New Testament. Do you think we might learn something from them? And so we've got this church filled of all kinds of people who've come from all different types of backgrounds, and what do we learn? We learn the defining themes of this series. What do we want to learn from this series? Well, there are two themes that come out of it. First of all, uh, just so you know, I did my homework. There are 104 verses in all of the book of Philippians. That means you could read the book of Philippians and be done by the time I finish my message. It either means my message is really long or the book of Philippians is really short. I'm going to say that the book of Philippians is really short. But what is talked about in there, in the 104 verses Of the book of Philippians, we are told 19 times about this thing, this emotion, this reality called joy. 19 different times. And we're going to learn about joy in all manner of circumstances, in manner of all activities of our lives. We're going to learn that you can have joy while being in a prison cell like Paul, who's writing from a prison connected by chain to the imperial guard, and yet he can share some of the greatest words of great joy to the people of God. Well, how are we to find this joy? How are we to pursue this joy? How are we to get this joy in the 21st century here in America? This joy is found in the second great theme of the book of Philippians, and that is Jesus Christ. You see, of the 104 verses of the book of Philippians, Jesus is spoken about 61 different times. And so Jesus, not joy, is the theme of Philippians, as he is the theme of all Scripture. And so how do we connect the two to make one unique theme of what we're a part of? I put it this way. The relentless joy that all of us are looking for and all of the world is looking for can only be found in Jesus Christ. That's the theme of this subject of the book of Philippians. And so we're going to learn more about these people and we're going to learn more about Paul and his circumstances, but what we're going to see, like in all of Scripture, Jesus is going to be lifted high and he's going to be raised for us to see so that we may imitate him and we might find the joy that he came in this world to give us and to find it in all its fullness. So now that we've got some things we've learned, let's move to seven truths that are essential to living. So we know about this first church in Europe, and we know that because of this church and many others, that not only Europe, but all of the world would hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it starts in this little city of Philippi. And we learn some important truths, but to understand these truths, 
We need to focus our attention for the rest of this message on this subject of joy. Because there's a lot of misnomers about joy. There's a lot of places where we go looking for joy, and we think we find it only to find out we are mistaken. And so let's look at some truths about joy, and let's ask the question this morning, am I really experiencing the joy that God wants me to have? Truth number one, joy is a common longing for all people. Let's start with that. Number one, whether you're old or young, men, male or female, rich or poor, educated or not, all of us have a desire, whether in the church or outside of the church, for joy. I can't imagine that there's anyone out there who says, I hope and pray that my life is utterly devoid of all happiness and joy. If that's where you're at, let's talk, because something's wrong. Because it seems as if the pursuit and longing of all people is to pursue joy. And the great sadness is is that when we don't have it, we are broken, we are empty, we are anxious and, and worry about that, because it seems that every part of our being is screaming, I want to be joyful. In fact, one of the longest studies that has ever been done in higher education is a study out of Harvard University. It is the, I remember the one guy's name, Gluck and Grant study. It's over 80 years old, and what it did was it explored the lives of 500 men starting 80 years ago, and that study is now coming to an end, where they explored these 500 men's lives, asking the question, What brings happiness and joy to people? And it's a study that has been examined. It's a study that is seeking to understand what brings people happiness and joy. And especially, by the way, in a country that our founding fathers said that we were given the right for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The pursuit of joy. An abundant life was laid before us by our founding fathers, and we have been on this perpetual journey here in America to try to find it. And here's the problem. We haven't found it yet. Notice this Time Magazine uh, cover that asks the question, the pursuit of happiness. And it's filled with all of this stuff, all of these things, whether it's being in movies or technology or advancements or riches with gold, all of these things... And it says the question, why Americans are wired to be happy and what that's doing to us. And if you were to read some of the articles from that magazine, you would learn we're not finding it. We're not finding real and true happiness or lasting joy. One of the bottom things says, uh, why does Facebook bring you down? Page 34. And so there's this dynamic of the social media that our interconnectedness should be, you would think, elevating our joy. And in fact, what it is doing, we'll talk about this in a moment, it may be in fact destroying it. Now here's the greater thing. We as adults are struggling with joy. And joy has been a constant and perpetual thing for generations. But what sociologists are saying is that it's impacting our younger generation in ways 
we've never even thought about. Notice this Time Magazine article, Anxiety, Depression, in the Modern Adolescent. And what's happening, and teenagers, I'm, I'm talking about you, there's something about your generation, there's something, and it started with the millennial generation, and I'm not casting aspersions on, on any generation, but, but this epidemic of anxiety and depression began to morph itself. It began to become a situation that was all-encompassing both the men and, and women of, of young people, uh, that generation, and it's impacted them in greater ways. And the question is, what is causing our young people, the young people who should be full of dreams and aspirations, the ones who, who of course, haven't become adults yet and aren't dealing with all of the difficulties of life, why are our young people, one study said, the saddest of them all? Let me tell you something. We are in trouble as a society when the young people are the cynics beyond the older ones. Old people, we're supposed to be cynics, right? We, we've gotten curmudgeon-y and crotchety and, and angry in our old age. That's what happens, right? It's drinking too much coffee. But our young people, our young people should be the ones who remind us there's a future. And what we see over and over again, and not of all young people, this is not, I don't want to uh, paint with too broad of a brush, but sociologists are throwing out the alarms. We have a lack of joy in the lives of adults, but even more alarming is the lack of joy in the lives of our young people. So what are we to do? Well, I want you to know this morning, while it's a common longing, the reason it's a common longing is that God has given us a capacity for joy. That's right. You have at your disposal the ability to be filled with joy. It isn't based on other people. It isn't based on who you're dating or who you're married to. It isn't based on who your boss is. It isn't based on what your grades are or what your paycheck is. You and I have the capacity to be filled with joy. Where does that capacity come from? It comes from our creator. We are told that we are created in the image and likeness of God. And with that image bearing, comes elements of who God is that is a part and parcel with who we are. I am a byproduct of my mom and dad, and it is no wonder why people, when they hear me, say, you sound like your dad. When they look at me, they say, you look like your parents. You, you're a badal, because I'm an image bearer in some ways to their DNA, and likewise, we have a God who created us in his image. So let's talk about that for a moment. This God who created us, who has imprinted on every man, woman, and child the dignity of being image bearers, number one, we are to be a joyful people and have the capacity for joy because we were created by a God of joy. We are told in the scriptures, Genesis 1, that God created the heavens and the earth, and each day he created, he would say it was very good. Those are words of joy. God sat back, saw what he created, and he said, boy, not only was that fun, but that fills me with joy. We are told that God is a God whose aura, that is his presence, is one of strength, the Old Testament says, and joy. And so where God goes, there is strength, that is stability, and there is joy. 
So one of the things, and this will be hard for some to hear, one of the things that is the reason why we struggle with joy is we're not close enough to God. Because God's our source. Now, we're told this numerous times in the scriptures when we are told that the joy of the Lord will be our strength and other things. It talks about the joy of the Lord. That phrase is mentioned over and over and over again. And so we are to seek out that joy that comes from God. Notice that God lives in a place, dwells in a place where there is great joy. Luke chapter 15. It tells us that when a sinner repents, there is great rejoicing in heaven. Not just ordinary run-of-the-mill rejoicing, but great rejoicing. And so what is happening right now is heaven is a place filled with joy. And so what we need to do is we need to start rehearsing our joy because we're going to live in a place, we're going to live in the presence of God where there is joy unspeakable, and this is our practice opportunity to see it done. The next thing that we see is that this joy is one of the fruits of the Spirit. We are told that the fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, long-suffering, all of these things that God has gifted His people through the Holy Spirit, and one of them is joy. And so it is the uh, responsibility of the Christian to live these things out, not as a duty, but a part of the very expression of being a follower of Jesus Christ, of being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And so, personalities don't dictate joy. Problems don't dictate joy. God has given every person an opportunity and a capacity for joy. Now, let's notice another thing. What happens to our joy? If that is true, where does our joy go? Notice our joy is lost because of the circumstances of life. Things happen. And we think we've got joy, but we don't. And we need to be careful because we create joy, and even happiness, it's the same word in the Scripture, joy and happiness. But I'm, I'm sorry, joy that is based on circumstances is an immature joy. It's an undeveloped or underdeveloped expression of joy. You see, it's not hard when you get a raise to have joy. It's not hard when your marriage is going well to have joy. It's not hard when everybody treats you with respect and dignity to have joy. But what is difficult, what is maturity, is when nothing is going right, that joy is what you find. That's what makes the story of Paul in Philippi so amazing. Paul's in prison. Paul's under lock and key. Paul is going throughout his daily life, and I don't want to get into the gross details of that, but think about every detail of your life being under the watchful um, guard of an uh, an imperial soldier. You're doing life, all of life, with someone watching you. And what is that imperial guard seeing in the life of Paul? Joy. 
You see, what God wants us to do is to have so much joy in our lives that it overflows to other people. God wants you, listen, this is really hard on a Sunday. God wants you to walk into your office or your school tomorrow with so much joy that it brightens the Monday. And the reason why you haven't isn't because everything's great when you walk into work or school on Monday, but because the joy of God has been graced to you, has been given to you through the person and work of Jesus Christ, and you have nothing more uh, uh, that you can do to contain that joy. So it's like spaghetti sauce. You get close to it, it gets on you. It's just all over you. And people are sitting there going, where'd this joy come from? Why is this joy on me? So what keeps us from it? Circumstances. So let's nail a couple of these. Number one, sin. Sin will rob you of your joy. It will rob you of your joy because if God is the source of joy and sin is living antithetical to God and in opposition to God, you cannot expect that you will get from the source that which you're rebelling from. Do you understand that? And so if you are playing with sin, if you are living in sin, you will not experience the joy. You will experience pleasure for a season, yes, but you will not experience the joy that God so deeply desires for you and I to have. And so maybe today there needs to be some repenting of sin so that joy may fill your heart. And there is that opportunity If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That is the beginning of joy. But what else brings joy? Write these down. Number one, there is shame. Shame robs you of your joy in the past. So you're living life and you're enjoying life and the devil... Or someone else says, huh, remember when? Remember when you made that dumb decision? Remember when you embarrassed yourself? Remember when you committed that act? Remember, don't ever forget that. Live in the past. Don't ever forget that because you will always be there. And shame says I can't move on. Shame says I can't enjoy my past because there are some things in my past that I can't get behind. And the devil loves bringing up your past Because it robs you of your joy. What about the present? What robs you of joy in the present? Worry and anxiety. So you're enjoying the present. Things seem to be going well. You're looking at life. You're excited about life. There's there's wonderful things. You're enjoying the good that God has graced you with. And then the what ifs start happening. I got to worry about this. I got to worry about that and, and the details of my life. And Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, don't worry about that stuff, but we do anyway. And it robs us from enjoying the present. We just finished a Christmas season. And some of you were so anxious and so worried about the Christmas season that you never got around to enjoying the Christmas season. And it's come and it's gone. And you're like, I, I didn't enjoy, I didn't find joy today. Because I was worried and I was anxious and I missed out on the blessing of enjoying God's good and merciful gifts that are new each and every morning. What about the future? Fear. Fear robs us of joy in the future. What fear says is you can't dream. 
You can't hope. You can't plan. Because you don't know what's going to happen. And that fear and anxiety that moves in the present starts leading you to fearful uh, trepidation in the future. And so instead of looking forward, you look and, and you look forward and it f- makes you full of dread. Because fear paralyzes. Fear robs us and steals our joy. But there's one more thing. And this one is, is so big these days. You know what really can rob? All these things can do it. But you know what's doing it for us as a society? Comparison. You know, this advent of social media, you think you've got a wonderful family until you see someone else's posts. Well, wait a minute. Look at what they're doing. We enjoyed a movie at home. They went out and did this big family activity. You're happy with your kid's report card. It's great. Hey, they did all right. They're working hard. Until you see the posting on there, all my kids got all straight A's. They're being uh, given all of these accolades and all these awards. And I'm not saying those that do that are wrong. I think it's great for us to do that. But what we've got to recognize is, is there's this comparison going on. This comparison of I'm not living up. I'm not, I'm not uh, being what I, I should be. Look at how great their life is. And, and part of the thing that we've got to recognize is they're only sharing part of the story, right? It's only part of the story. I never see anybody on Facebook show a heap of laundry and say, that's the third day it's been sitting there. I never see anybody post the the hard conversation that a parent had to have with a teenager. I don't ever see, hey, by the way, we got last place at the tournament. We don't show that. And that's, again, it's not bad to celebrate it, but when we receive these things, be careful that we recognize, listen, it is like a young man or a young lady looking at a cover of a magazine and looking at that man or woman with all of of their flawlessness and saying, I can't do that. Well, the reason why is a lot of it's manufactured. There's a whole lot of things that aren't fully true about that picture. And what we need to recognize isn't, and I just, I just always think i got to be careful in this, it's not that there's deception or lying, but we're only getting part of the story. And it's the good part. And praise God for the good part, right? But we need to recognize in our comparing, we are losing our joy. Be careful that the circumstances of life Don't steal your joy. So what do we need to do? This is really important. We have to choose joy. We have to choose joy. Throughout the Bible, listen very carefully, you are told, I am told to be joyful. In fact, the Bible says over 30 different times the command to be joyful. We are commanded to rejoice, and because of that command... Our bitterness, our anger, our resentment, our sorrow, our worry, our frustration, our stress, our anxiety violates that command. Now, I don't want to be heartless in this, but we got to understand the God of the universe who created us, who loves us, and has brought us into a relationship with his son, Jesus Christ, is saying to us, as the God of the universe, You need to live out a life of joy. Why? Because he knows we have capacity to do it. 
And he knows if he doesn't tell us to do it, that we would live perpetually in lives of anything else but joy. And so we are commanded each and every day, no matter our circumstances, no matter the trials and temptations, we are to be filled with joy, no matter what happens, no matter what someone does to you. You have a choice, and the choice you need to make if you want to be obedient to God and his word is to choose joy. Can you say tomorrow, when the week begins, I choose joy? If you don't make that deliberate and dedicated decision, then the circumstances of life will rob you of your joy each and every day. We've got to choose it. Notice the next one. There are many counterfeits that promise joy but leave you empty. And so right away we're like, okay, I choose joy. Now i got to go find it. Where do I find it? Where do I get it? I want it, so where do I get it? The world advertises where to find joy. And I want to illustrate it through many different periodicals and advertisement. Notice the first one is processes, okay? Processes. We're beginning a new year. And we weren't filled with joy in the last year. And so there's this change of the calendar from 2019 to 2020. And it is my opportunity because I wasn't filled with joy in 2019. Now is the opportunity to be filled with it in 2020. So what am I going to do? I'm going to start that diet. I'm going to do that new regimen. I'm going to do this new process. I've come up with this new secret. I'm going to be more organized. That's going to bring me joy. And so we're at the doctor's office or in the checkout aisle and we see this picture from Men's Health. I didn't know they got my picture, by the way. And we see Rock, the Rock, Dwayne Johnson. And we say, he's figured it out. He's got processes that have made him one who has joy. I want that kind of joy. And notice what joy, where joy is found. In building huge biceps. Because by building huge biceps, he found inner calm. Well, of course he's calm. He's worth a net $280 million. And he rules the world. And he has found a way, by the way, to flat the belly fast. And he's found joy. And so we sit there and say, I want that. I want that. I looked at that, and the only thing I wanted was the 12 best sandwiches for men. That's where joy is found. Someone called Jimmy John so that they can get us some sandwiches. And so in the process of life, we try to figure out, what did Dwayne the Rock Johnson do? Because that is the epitome of happiness and joy. And I'm going to read, I'm going to spend $4.95 and read about how I as a man can find health and vitality and joy in the process. Let's check out another one. What about possessions? Look at this. Look at what they're having. BMW, great car. And look how happy that guy is. His docker pants and he's looking good, got the fedora hat on. And it says joy, notice, joy is youthful. Joy is BMW. And then the logo, I don't know what that means, but it's got joy there. You can't read it 
It says, joy seeks out the kid in all of us. And there, it knows there's fun to be had right around the corner, just over the next hill. Joy knows the other you that, that after you experience it for the first time, there's no looking back. You're hooked for life. You realize a long time ago that what you make people feel is just as important as what you make. And at BMW, we make joy, joy, joy. Pull out your phones and order a BMW. And listen, why are we driving Chevys? If I could have joy in a car, then what in the world am I doing? And we buy into this, right? We do. If I have the right car, cars are great, don't get me wrong, but if I have the right car, I will find joy. Notice the next one. Drink lemonade and you'll find joy. We just throw this word joy around, like eating or drinking, the contents of a glass bottle are going to cause joy. Why? Because people know Advertisers know we're longing for it. Let's move on to the next one. Oh, the ladies, you get into it too. How do you find joy? Notice it wants you to be your happiest today. And they've researched it. You can read that on page 82. You can learn how the latest research has helped you. And you know where joy is found? By making healthy recipes. By not being involved in online infidelity. By having snacks that curb your cravings so you don't ditch your diet. Joy is found, and I I think ladies would agree, when you don't have migraines, that's good. Joy is when you don't have moles. Let's deal with those moles. Everybody's looking at themselves right now. Joy is about good workouts. Joy is about having toned arms. Because we get a picture of a person, male or female, and we say, they look happy. They look like they're full of joy. There's a reason why that lady isn't crying. Because if she's crying, you're not going to want to read that. And so she's beautiful. And she's in a place of great joy. And we want to find out how you get there. Maybe it's power. Time Life again. I'm advertising Time Life magazine quite a bit. They did a cover story. The State of the American Woman. And the new poll shows why they are more powerful. Awesome. Awesome. We should be very excited in the church when we see women using their gifts as image bearers of God to shape the world, the church, the home, and all of society. That's awesome. And it's been amazing to see that happen in these recent generations. But notice what the text says. Women thought if we got power... Many women thought we would be happy, but notice what time says. A new poll shows why they are more powerful, but less happy. Power doesn't bring joy. You see, all of these counterfeits are all things that the devil says, you know what, instead of going after God, go after this stuff. And what happens is, is we pursue these things and never find joy. We drink it up like it's salt water, and the only thing it does is make us thirst more and more. And so what do we need to know? We need to turn to God's Word. And we're going to go on this journey. But I want you to see two truths from 
verse 1 and 2. And we'll dig in deeper into this text, but I wanted to set the stage for this journey we're going on. I want you to know that joy is compounded through Christian community. This message isn't written to one person. It's written to an entire church community. It's written to the saints and servants of Philippi. It's written to the leaders, the elders, and and deacons of the church. We're going to see it's written to the congregants of the church. And, And I want you to know something that maybe you don't realize, but one of the reasons why God wants you in church, and could it be one of the reasons why Christians today are less joyful than they've ever been according to studies, is because we're not attending church as we should. And you say, well, Tim, that's an easy, easy advertisement for you as a pastor. But, but what we're going to learn is that joy is compounded, it's added, it's enhanced through Christian community. You see, when we gather together, we remind ourselves of the joy we have in the Lord. And maybe this morning you came to church and you were down and you were despondent and and you were lacking joy because of the circumstances of life. And it's understood we have times like that. And you walk into a room of people and maybe it's your small group and maybe it's church where you hear someone say, the Lord met me this week. The Lord made an inroad in a relationship that I had this week. And their joy is contagious. And their joy is a reminder that maybe in your trials and tribulations, you're wondering if God is on the move and you're hearing, whether through song or whether through the preaching or whether through testimony, God is on the move. And because God is on the move, you and I can be filled with joy. Listen, this place should raise up a heart of joy within you. And if we're not doing that, There's two issues. One, we've created an unhealthy environment that is a counterfeit in and of itself. Or two, you're coming with the wrong expectations. You're coming with the wrong mindset. You're coming focused in primarily on something else other than God, meet me in this place. And by your grace and by and through your people, Lord, I ask that what is lacking in my joy, you will fill up. Finally, and we'll close this thing out, joy is only complete through Jesus. Notice the end of this passage that begins our our letter. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In two verses, Jesus Christ is named three times. And the only way we are going to find joy is is in a relationship with him. And maybe today you've come in and this is all new to you and you've wondered, is this what I'm looking for? The answer is a wholeheartedly yes. Jesus is what you've been looking for. Jesus is the source of the, of the joy. In John chapter 15 verse 11, he says, I came that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And so as you begin to uh, develop your relationship with Jesus Christ, your joy will continue to grow and grow and grow. How? By his grace and his peace. Grace 
tells me that I can have joy because God gives me good things even though I don't deserve it. Peace reminds me that I can experience joy because I have everything I need through a God who supplies all my needs. And so if I have this relationship with Jesus, I don't need to worry. I don't need to be anxious for anything. I don't have to be paralyzed in fear. But I have now the opportunity to be filled to overflowing with the joy of the Lord, which will sustain me and it will allow me to be an ambassador of joy to all those I come in contact with. And because of Jesus, I can live in his abundance. We've got a journey ahead of us. Because if you're like me, I fight at times for my joy. And I need to give it over to Christ and rest in the joy that he alone can give. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and I thank you for the patience of your people. There was a lot here this morning, Lord. And I pray that if not all of it, that it would be even just one part that would resonate with each person here this morning. Lord, allow us to find joy. Turn us away from the things that seek to steal joy from our lives. Turn us away from the things that advertise joy, but in the end, leave us wanting more. And let us turn our eyes to you, Jesus. You are the author and perfecter of our faith, but Lord, might I add, you are the author and perfecter of our joy. You showed us what it meant to live a life of joy, even amidst struggle, even amidst the cross. So whatever this week means for any one of us, Lord, I pray that the common thread would be that each of us would engage it and experience it and embrace it, the good, the bad, the ugly, with nothing but joy in our heart, knowing you are with us and you will not leave us or forsake us. Thank you, Lord, for joy. And thank you that you give it so freely to us. Let us find it in you and you alone. Amen.